And the same could be said today as we face these draconian laws. It's good to first, I think, reaffirm our purpose, reaffirm that historical narratives are effective and the truth is powerful. Historical awareness can activate people. Uh, education is central to freedom. And, and that's exactly why it's attacked. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school social studies teacher and principal. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher out here in the Los Angeles area. I'm mostly teaching ethnic studies this year. This year is my... 19th year in the classroom and this here of course is all the above your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education jeff it is so wonderful to see your face it has been it's been a long time since we've had a full episode in the video format and in all that good stuff so look at us look at us and you looks like you got a brand new <laughs> studio over there brand new situation you know, man, well, the studio is being uh, christened today, I guess, <laughs> as, as they would say, uh, used for the first time at the new house. Um, and just to let people in on a little bit of the behind the scenes magic here uh, and all the above, I discovered this morning uh, after, you know, installing the screen behind me and other things over over the last couple of weeks uh, that the studio I'm now using, um, also known as my home office, uh, is echoey for whatever reason. So around me on the floor right now is blankets and pillows and other sound absorbing <laughs> soft materials. <laughs> uh, we're gonna have to do a little bit of upgrade though because I can't just be throwing pillows and blankets on the ground uh, the rest of the way here with the show. So, uh, you know, it's a work in progress, but uh, glad to be back. Yeah, for sure. Glad to be back. And that does sound like a very fancy setup situation you have over there. And for folks who might be newer to our show, you know, we used to film this in a TV studio at my school site and then the pandemic happened and we had to transition to filming it in our own homes. And thanks to the support from our ALTA family. We're able to buy some equipment to, to help us record in the house situation and all that. And although most folks listen to the, the podcast and don't necessarily watch the video format, we do th throw these out there on the YouTubes. So we would love it if all of you, especially those of you who do listen to the audio version, go ahead and click click the YouTube link under the, well, in the episode description and just go over to the video just real quick, just to give a quick thumbs up because we have had many folks discover our show through that YouTube channel that we have. Although the YouTube channel, you know, we don't do a lot over there. We're not very active on it, but we do post each episode there. And every once in a while, a brand new teacher will encounter us on the YouTubes and then head over to the podcast. And it helps for the algorithms if you go over and uh, give us that quick thumbs up or subscribe if you haven't already. And of course, if you are, listening to us on Spotify. We are not affiliated with Spotify and this is not an ad for Spotify, but we do want you to know if you are watching or listening on Spotify, you could go to our little, the little thumbnail and you see the video right there. The video is just automatically embedded in the Spotify app. So you can check us out that way if you like. So with all that being said, Jeff, here we are again with another full episode. Of course, our full episodes are chock full of a lot of dopeness. We usually have a super dope guest and cover multiple headlines and all that good stuff on our regular full all of all of the above episodes. So Jeff, break it down for us. What is on today's agenda? Well, Manuel, as always, we got a good one for everybody. And uh, today I am super excited. This 
Uh, this episode, man, well, has been in the works now for a couple of months. We've been plotting and scheming uh, to get this guest on. And um, we have had previously on the show um, a guest from the Zen Education Project, an organization that I am pretty sure that most, if not all, uh, of the listening and viewing audience of all the above is, is familiar with because they do amazing work around issues of curriculum, pedagogy, even some organizing and kind of uh, educator activism uh, work uh, through the publication of books, through the analysis of curriculum and standards. And uh, not too long ago, uh, the Zen Education, Public, Zen Education Project published um, a new, just fascinating uh, report, Manuel, that I think everybody's going to love. Uh, the report is titled Erasing the Black Freedom Struggle, How State Standards Fail to Teach the Truth About Reconstruction. And it really dives deeply into just some profound questions that, especially in this day and age of critical race theory and all that hullabaloo, right, um, really breaks down how state standards and the curriculum that follows um, are ignoring, whitewashing, erasing um, a lot of the history around the Reconstruction era in this country and what it meant in terms of the black freedom struggle and also the kind of rise of the more modern state of white supremacist terrorism, the KKK and state-sponsored violence that we see. Um, and so we are so excited and privileged to have on today one of the co-authors of that report. Uh, her name is Mimi Eisen, fantastic uh, researcher and scholar, uh, someone who I think is going to just bring a, a fantastic perspective uh, to the show today. So folks, you are in the right place. Definitely stick around. You're going to want to be a part of this conversation. Sounds dope. Sounds dope, as always. But Jeff, you know, I'm wondering, because, you know, our show, we covered different headlines. And, you know, today we'll talk about a report um, dealing with, uh, well, mandated reporting. And we're going to talk about learning loss a little bit and some other things. And, you know, there's folks listening who want to get up on the news. And there might be maybe a middle school science teacher listening who wants to, you know, be abreast of the news when it comes to education. But they don't teach history. They don't teach social science. So this reconstruction business, eh, why should they listen in to this interview if that's not necessarily within the realm of what they actually teach. Yeah, well, I mean, there's definitely a strong content implication for this conversation, for sure. Us, you know, social studies folks can uh, can geek out on the those standards. But more broadly, man, well, I would say anyone who has an interest in public schools, who has an interest in children, and who has an interest in democracy, who has an interest in teaching truth to children and wanting to see us have honest conversations about what the, the history of our country is and how our world around us came to look the way it does today uh, has a huge stake in today's conversation, Manuel. This is uh, really striking at the core of what does it mean for us to have a system of public education? How do we, as a people who say, at least, that, that we value democracy and that we want to uphold democratic values, uh, certainly that can't be true or can't be enacted. Uh, without truthful teaching uh, in our schools. And I think this is just a, a you know one really important example uh, laid out in just fantastic detail in this study from the Zen Education Project uh, of the kind of war underneath the war, right? Like this level of the conversation isn't getting covered in your you know ABC, NBC, nightly news, right? Um, but this is this is what is 
kind of the, the battlefield for truth um, underneath public education in this country. So anybody who cares about those things, you're in the right place. Most definitely, most definitely. All right, folks, up next though, is our Do Now, where we're gonna take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Jeff, how are we gonna do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, uh, it would be only fitting for the triumphant return of the filmed edition of All the Above uh, for us to surprise everyone totally unprepared with a pop quiz. Ooh, pop quiz. Jeff, I don't know. I don't know. Our, our, our listeners have been used to these passing periods where it's just like, you know, relaxed talk like you do during a passing period. I don't know if we're ready for a pop quiz, man. I don't know if that's fair. Well, it, uh, fairness is an irrelevant question. Put away your notes. <laughs> Get out your pencils. Thinking caps on, people. It's time for a little <laughs> pop quiz. All right. You heard the man. High expectations, man. We're dealing with That's learning right. loss. We got to go. We got full steam All ahead, right. man. Exactly. All right. First quiz question, Jeff. I have a question for you. Where are children being separated from their families? Well, clearly everybody in this country knows the answer to that question. It is Texas, uh, Arizona, maybe even in California here uh, down on the border. But, um, you know, it was all over the news, man. We we know where it's going down. Ah, wrong answer, Jeff. Wrong answer. Mm. Clearly you did not study, Jeff, because this is happening in cities across America. So mm. you are 0 for 1 on this episode, Jeff. <laughs> Might want to study more. Might have to uh, refer yes. you to a double block of, um, in this case, social studies, perhaps. No art and music for me this year. Definitely apparently. not. Definitely yes. none. All right. So this story comes to us by way of the 74 million. And the author of this story, actually, we're going to lean on their journalistic work um, several times during this episode. And that is Asher Lair Small. And they report that between August of 2019 and January of 2022, New York City school employees made nearly 14,000 false alarm reports to the state child abuse hotline, according to data obtained by the 74. And the vast majority of these school-based reports were ultimately unfounded. Less than one in three teacher reports led to any evidence of wrongdoing. Now, one middle school teacher from the Bronx, Jessica Beck, said, quote, teachers, out of fear that they're going to get in trouble, will report even if they're just like, well, it could be abuse. It might not be. It could also be 10 million other things. She added, what looks like neglect to a teacher who has privilege might actually be poverty. Darcy Merritt, uh, associate professor of social work at New York University, said that the ethos around mandated child abuse reporting is when in doubt, report. And these reports spur investigations that in some cases can lead to can lead to children being separated from their parents, a trauma associated with elevated risks of mental health challenges, incarceration and even early death. Even when closed and dropped, investigations can stay on parents' records for years afterward and erase job prospects in youth-serving fields. 
Now that English teacher, uh, that Bronx teacher, Jessica Beck, presented a very basic example of how this works. So educators are trained that poor hygiene can be a sign of neglect, but if a kid in her classes smells, she'll speak with the parents rather than immediately calling in a report. But some colleagues in the same situation might call the state hotline, plunging that family's life into the havoc of a neglect investigation. So Jeff, cities across America, we have educators, Mandated reporters calling in for suspected or possible incidents of child abuse. And according to this report, less than one one in three of those are actually like what the teacher suspects they might be. So we have many children across the United States perhaps being at risk of being separated from their families for who knows what. So, Jeff, what are your thoughts on this on the story about mandated reporting? Yeah, Manuel, when I read this story, I was both uh, deeply grateful that the story was being written because, as folks may remember, I uh, spent the first half of my career as a teacher, coach, administrator in New York City, and the article focuses heavily on some examples from the Bronx. That's where I did most of my work. Uh, So it really felt like a story about home in that way. And, And I can deeply identify on a very personal level with the uh, all the complexities in this case, right? Um, with both the sort of righteous obligation that educators have as mandated reporters to be advocates for children, to be on the lookout for evidence of neglect and abuse of children, and to uh, to be sort of forces for good in the equation on the one hand. And then on the other hand, recognizing how slippery the slope is between that righteous, you know, motivation and a a real lived reality, which, as the article says, can very often simply uh, punish poor people for being poor, can punish people uh, with different family structures of living at home or, uh, you know, not the economic means to provide all of the needs for their child consistently throughout the course of the year or, you know, who, you know, may have issues with like, we don't have a way to do laundry right now. We're living, you know, in a temporary living arrangement of some sort. Um, And so we're coming to school with the same outfit and maybe not smelling great for a period of time. But I'm actually with my family, loved and cared for, you know, by my family inside of a larger system where, frankly, man, well, let's be real. Apart from the most sort of violent, dangerous, abusive situations, the alternative of the foster care system of, you know, institutional placement of young people, one can certainly make the argument is not any better than a tough home situation, right? So there is a just a huge, huge uh, sort of messy soup of state oppression, of racism and historical legacy, of family separation, uh, of, you know, unconscious and very conscious bias uh, that comes into this equation, Manuel, where this is a very, very um, easily problematic uh, set of outcomes that can happen from a mandated reporter system that is both righteously motivated and also, I think, 
uh, kind of scares educators into over-reporting uh, without the proper yeah. context, without the kind of cultural competence to understand the, the context within which you are working, especially if you are not from that community, to distinguish between our society is unfair and oppressive and people live with the byproducts of that versus an abusive home situation. So this, this like felt very, very real and familiar. And I have had conversations with teachers about this. I have debated, do I call or not call uh, myself many times over the years? Uh, and I think this, this is one of those topics, Manuel, where it's, it's just not as, as clear cut and easy as it seems. And also clearly what we're doing right now is not working. Yeah. Yeah, and I like that analogy that, that you painted there of this messy soup here uh, between oppression and white supremacy and poverty and all these things. Um, I think we need to stick a American flag in the middle of that soup because this is mm. such a, this, this whole story is so America here with poverty being punished, with undertrained teachers who perhaps aren't, aren't, don't have the capability or haven't been really led in a, in a, quality way into understanding the the importance of connections with the community and connections with their students and you just just have this whole mess here where two-thirds of the calls are unfounded and it's the the story does a really good job really great job of painting a picture of how traumatic that can be for the family. So it opens up with the story of this mother who happens to be PTA president at one of her children's schools. She has three children and um, they were thrown into a mess of, of a case looking into whether or not their children are malnourished. Her husband is a professional chef and um, she suspects this came from the era of Zoom school. And well, one of her kids was looking too skinny on the Zoom camera and a teacher called in a report, she thinks. And next thing you know, they're they're fighting this case for a year or two with the um, government looking into their home, looking into their fridge and seeing if, if their children are malnourished. That kind of trauma is very, very, um, very serious and needs to be taken seriously with regards to like the power that we have as educators, the power of the school system to be the, the arm of the state that helps punish folks who are living in poverty. In her case, poverty wasn't the issue. It was just, I guess, a misunderstanding. But um, we see this too often. And for anybody who might be listening who's not an educator, who just um, it, it appreciates our conversations about education and the education system, if you're not familiar with the concept of mandated reporting, it's, you know, all of us teachers, we're trained and every year we have to take this updated training about how we are mandated by law to report uh, incidents of suspected child abuse or neglect and it's it's hammered home to us that there's fines, there's all kinds of punishment depending on, you know, I'm sure it varies state by state. But like, if you even suspect something, you better call that in because if not, um, trouble can come. And of course, of course, there are so many cases where children were um, attended to who were in abusive, uh, abusive households and thanks to mandated reporting, um, the case there, you know, the children were um, put somewhere safer. But like, many of the cases, according to this article, the majority of the calls um, aren't aren't that at all. And I'm thinking about a conversation I had with a student recently. I noticed the student wears the same graphic t-shirt practically every single day. And in noticing that, you know, that, that could be a sign of some kind of neglect, like the kids showing up in the same clothes every single day. And I had a conversation with the kid because I'm in a place where I could talk to the kid. And I'm like, yo, I notice you wear that shirt a lot. Like, what's up with that? And it ended up being this really long, detailed conversation 
about like this uniform that he has for himself that he enjoys because it represents himself and he's so unique and creative in this way and like very sincerely like painting this picture for me of like how to him this is like and it wasn't like you know it, it was clearly really well thought out and it was kind of dope mm. actually and now <laughs> i find myself reaching out yeah. to this student's teachers a lot more just to make sure that they you know kind of are are aware of how creative and unique this this kid is and that like they need not be concerned about um the same shirt being worn every single day but i i assume there's many teachers across america that will see that and just call the hotline just in case so that the government could go to that child's home and make sure that they are um, not being neglected so yeah man really really um scary troubling stuff and only in america man poverty is so uh so widespread and teachers are so underprepared and undertrained not just teachers but of course counselors and administrators who also make these calls and in the end you have families being separated from their children in cities across america Sad yeah stuff. i i will just add one one additional thing manuel which is uh i think you're right that in many cases folks are undertrained and even if you are well trained a lot of times these are just very tough calls. That is true, where, that is true. Where is the line between we live in desperate poverty in one of the richest cities in the world, which causes us yeah. to suffer in a myriad of ways. We don't have enough food. We don't have stable access to a telephone. Our housing situation may be good at some times, maybe outright unsafe at other times. We might have to move back in with a abusive, past partner of my mom, right? Um, now, where is the line between yeah. that being neglectful, <laughs> right? Or abusive to the child and that being actually the right decision because sleeping on the street is even more dangerous than that, right? And right. so the, you are as a mandated reporter and as a school, as an, as an arm of the state here, brought into this kind of murky space where we as a society have chosen to have deeply violently unfair and, and, and unequal economic situations uh, with all the kind of policing and, and oppressive aspects of the state wrapped around people tightly, right? And so, and then you're asked to make judgment calls. Yep. And this stuff is very hard, but Manuel, literally nothing that I've seen in my career is more damaging to the relationship between a family and the school than making, uh, in the case of New York City, that institution that does child welfare is called ACS, the Administration for Children's Services, making a ACS call that is the wrong call. Like if there, there's one single thing you could do to be like, we will never be able to have a good relationship with this family, it is doing that. So there, there's all kinds of complications in this equation and it's often treated by the, the system, especially if you miss something, right? And a child winds up harmed or dead or something, right? The stakes from a PR standpoint are extremely high on like, oh, well, why yeah. didn't the school report? Why didn't ACS follow up and remove the child from the home, right? Like these kinds of things are, it's just very, very complicated. It is very complicated and I would appreciate as a classroom teacher, training that is more than just us understanding the terminology and us understanding the punishment for not um, calling in a report. Because especially nowadays with the housing crisis being what it is, especially with having more students than ever who are unhoused or in, in unstable housing conditions, uh, that murkiness that you described there, um, it's gonna be murky regardless, but conversations can be had about dealing with some of that murkiness in situations where, yeah, this kid might be, you know, them and their family might be living in a, out of a hotel this week and out of who knows what next week. And at, at what point 
is the line crossed of where we're entering neglect, you know? So like the training has been really, really bad in my experience. It has been really just focused on terminology and punishment. It would be nice to have some real conversations about what this looks like in our modern context because poverty is a mother and it's out there and we need not punish people for being poor. Yet we need to, of course, of course, be on the lookout for instance where instances where children are in harmful situations, and we might be the only ones to notice, and we might be um, at the at the start of that life saving call. So yeah, yeah, yep. All right. Well, Jeff, that was our first pop quiz question. I think we have time for for another pop quiz question uh, before we get to our seminar. So what we got? What we got? Well, Manuel, our second pop quiz question for the day is, uh, when is a 2% decline in something, when does that represent the sky is falling, Manuel? Ah, Jeff, I was that student. I was that student where if my grade dropped from a 99% to a 97%, my goodness, what, do you offer extra credit? What can I do? Can I redo this mm -hmm. assignment? Can I retake that test? A 97, mm -hmm. good Lord, what is going on? Because I was a believer in grades and that A's reflects excellence and all of that stuff. I was indoctrinated, Jeff, in the school system to believe that that 99% dropped to a 97, ah, Trend in the wrong direction, got to do something or else my whole future will collapse. So this must be yeah. talking about grades. Yeah, well, uh, you just made me flashback uh, to some vivid memories from my own child. So that is definitely a correct answer. It's just not the correct answer in this particular case. Mm. Uh, the, the answer we're looking for today, Manuel, is the nation's average ACT score. Uh, at least if you are, you know, according to some folks, uh, in particular, some of the, the more obsessed with learning loss, uh, Manuel. So uh, this is an interesting story, new, new angle on the learning loss equation, in particular for older uh, secondary students. So we're going to get into this. And as Manuel alluded to, uh, today's article, or this article, also was written by Asher Lehrer-Small in the 74. So big shout out to, uh, to Asher uh, on some great work this week and um, our totally unintentional citing of two of Asher's <laughs> articles. So props to you. Um, all right, let's get into it here. Um, ACT scores from this year's high school graduates dropped to their lowest level in three decades, according to a report released on September 12th. Exam takers averaged 19.8 out of a possible 36 total points on the college admissions test, which represents the first time since 1991 that nationwide results dipped below the kind of typical average score of 20. Scores for students from low-income families were particularly worrisome. Those youth scored an average of 17.4. Only 8% of low-income students hit the college readiness benchmark in all four subjects, compared to nearly a quarter of their more affluent peers. There is no way to sugarcoat these ACT results, said Robin Lake, director of the Center on Reinventing Public Education. College entrance exam scores have plummeted, reflecting substantive holes in student knowledge and abilities, end quote. The numbers provide new insight into the educational harms that older learners have experienced during the pandemic, said Thomas D., professor of education at Stanford University. The September release of NAEP scores, that's the National Assessment of Educational Progress, 
revealed unprecedented declines in learning among younger students, but until now there's been less documentation of the impacts for high schoolers, he said. So Manuel, uh, this year's drop um, in average ACT scores was a 2% drop uh, from 23, um, excuse me, 20.3 to 19.8. Uh, the sky is falling. Uh, the, learning last, the learning loss is literally collapsing upon us. What are we going to do? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the a ACT sounds a lot like me when I saw that 99% go down to a 97%. Good Lord. Um, yeah, 2% drop. I have a lot of questions, obviously. Um, one question I have is, is, is it my fault, perhaps? Because I don't actually talk about the SAT or the ACT as much as I used to as a teacher. I used to, you know, be up on students about like, you know, um, are you registered to take it? What was your score? And I used to, you know, have a lot of conversations with students about preparing for those. But now most of my students apply to colleges that don't require the SAT or the ACT. Most of them um, from, you know, from where I live, go to the Cal State University system or the UC system. And of course, those tests have dropped dramatically with regards to their importance for admissions. And some schools are test optional and many schools just don't look at the scores at all. So if I'm speaking about them less to students, I imagine other teachers of high schoolers like myself um, are also speaking less to their students about it. And I imagine fewer students are getting that test prep that they used to get back in the day. And I wonder how much of that factors into this. Obviously, the pandemic hugely factors into this. So then I wonder how much of this is how much of this apparent drop is temporary as more and more students um acclimate to our new post, not post pandemic, but ongoing, I guess, endemic uh, COVID situation. So those students who perhaps took the test um, while grieving the loss of loved ones um, and various other experiences during the height of the pandemic, I wonder as as time passes, how how much of that will return to, you know, pre-pandemic levels of, of test taking. And, you know, just generally speaking, they said these scores haven't been this low since 1991. A lot has changed since 1991. Uh, my interactions with mathematics, for example, has changed a lot because of technology and because of um, what technology does for us. So then I also wonder how relevant these scores are in today's modern context of technology. I know that, or I assume the ACT and the SAT have continued to try to uh, develop questions and develop items that um, are in keeping with trying to measure college readiness. But so much has changed so quickly that I wonder how relevant some of the items on the exam might be for today's learners who interact with text differently than the learners of the past and interact with information differently. So I wonder all those things, Jeff, but yeah, maybe it's my fault. I don't talk about it enough in class anymore. So I'll take the blame. How about that? I'll take the blame. It is, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, this is definitely the fault of the teachers and most specifically one Dr. Manuel Rustin. Indeed. Uh, so all blame can henceforth be passed on <laughs> to him. Uh, I, you know, Manuel, honestly, my, my like gut emotional reaction to this story is like, next, I don't care. <laughs> I, on a that personal, works too. deep, that works deep too. personal <laughs> level, I'm like, eh, interesting data or whatever, but like, I don't care. We have so many things to worry about in education right now. This is somewhere near the absolute bottom of the list, right? Um, and to show you how much 
I think it's at the bottom of the list, man. Well, I would put it significantly below just your regular old state test scores, right, mm. for high schoolers. Um, because these college entrance exams, as you've stated, are becoming less and less important as gatekeepers to college access in many contexts. They are undisputably a very um, sort of like... Um, bias-laden type of testing, right? Um, there are huge correlations between income, access to preparation courses, et cetera, and right. success on the exam. Like, even though there are some correlations between college success and performance on these exams, there are other variables in the equation that tend to correlate better. Um, and honestly, Manuel, these, like, in this context, it feels to me like the absolute last thing I want to see is this data leading us towards any type of new policy outcome, right? We yep. need to support young people with learning in school and with their social emotional well-being in school. That's the top priority. SAT and ACT are like 55 steps <laughs> below that. So, you know, hey, this represents a decline, oh well. You know what I just paid for gas yesterday at the pump here in California, Manuel? <laughs> like $7 a gallon, okay? So everything from mental health to the price at the pump has also suffered during the pandemic. So when I can go back out and get some only mildly overpriced $4 a gallon gas again, then we can talk about how a 2% drop in ACT scores is a, is a national crisis. So, you know, I'm glad someone's paying attention to this data. This is so not a national priority. Uh, and something that I think maybe five years from now, if we do a great job of, you know, uh, supporting educators, of solving the teacher shortage crisis, of, you know, re-establishing um, great physical plants in all of our schools with effective HVAC systems so we don't have to worry about Omicron outbursts after winter break this year with half the student population and adult population having to stay home sick and people losing family members, then... Happy to have the conversation about the 2% drop in ACT scores. Sounds about right to me. All right. I, I withdraw my admittance to being at fault for this because it <laughs> doesn't matter. Don't blame me. Too late. Too late. No, <laughs> no, no backsies, Manuel. <laughs> Damn it. All right. Uh, cool. All right. So there we have it, folks. Some examination of our mandated reporting situations in the school system. And then, of course, more, more learning loss. And I'm sure we'll have more indicators of just how catastrophic the learning loss has been as data comes out from different sources over time. But in any case, folks, that was good to now. But that's, that's about it. We got to shift over now to our seminar. We have a super dope guest on board here to talk to us about reconstruction the black freedom struggle and how all of this helps together us examine our public education system as an important tool, critical tool for democracy. All right, that's up next. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks so much for tuning in to All The Above. We really appreciate you. And as you know, All The Above is a small operation. It's just me and just Manuel, that's it. We have no sponsorships, which means we are totally dependent on our amazing audience to help support the show. So here's what you can do. Go to our website, which is aotashow.com support. That's aotashow.com support. 
There you can find links to everything you can do to support the show. You find all the links to every platform that we're on where you can like, subscribe, follow, make sure you share our show with your whole network. Also, you can donate there. We are on Venmo, we're on Cash App, and most importantly, you can find the link to our Anchor page where you can become a monthly patron. Even a small donation once a month will make a huge difference in helping us continue to produce the show. Lastly, you can find there the link to get your flyest, best, latest, all the above show merch, okay? All you gotta do is go to aotashow.com support. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us. And we are just thrilled to have today's guest with us. Uh, as we said at the top of the episode, we were gonna get deep today on uh, just a really fascinating topic, especially all the history teachers out there are gonna be able to nerd out on some discussion of reconstruction and its treatment by the nation's state standards. But honestly, anyone who believes in teaching truth to children, anyone who believes in democracy or aspirational democracy in this country, uh, today's conversation I think is gonna be at the heart of all of those issues. And we are just thrilled to have with us uh, Mimi Eisen from the Zen Education Project. Welcome to all the above, Mimi Eisen. Thank you so much. It's, it's great to be here, great to join you today. Yeah, well, we are excited to have you. And folks, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest. Uh, Mimi Eisen is a historian and program manager for the Zen Education Project, which promotes and supports the teaching of people's history in middle and high school classrooms across the country with free lessons, articles, workshops, and more. Originally from Philadelphia, she holds a BA in history from Cornell and a MA in American history from Brown University with a secondary focus in digital public humanities. Mimi specializes in civil rights, law, and citizenship in late 19th century America, but has taught high school level US history and developed educational content across eras and mediums. So welcome again, uh, Mimi, to all the, above, all the above, and I'm gonna kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, Mimi Eisen in the building. Thank you so much for taking time out to be here with us on all of the above and to share about this fantastic report um, that you co-authored. So, you know, this report, which is titled Erasing the Black Freedom Struggle, How State Standards Fail to Teach the Truth About Reconstruction, was released by the Zen Education Project. And we'll drop a link below in the episode notes for everybody to go and check the report out. And, you know, this report examines how state social studies standards tend to minimize the importance of reconstruction and erase the achievements of black folks during Reconstruction and really downplay the role and the, the significance of white state-sponsored terrorism during Reconstruction. So we would like to start by just having you share a bit about the report and, and the findings and also share maybe, you know, what is the, the, the goal or the hope for what the report might lead to? Absolutely. So I'll, I'll start with a, a little more context around the report, which we released earlier this year, and then get into the findings and the impact. So the report grew out of the Zen Education Project's Teach Reconstruction campaign. We have several campaigns, and this one is devoted to helping educators and students investigate and understand the true history and relevance um, of Reconstruction, because it is so consequential and misunderstood and suppressed 
in K through 12 education and public memory. So Reconstruction was this time during and after the Civil War with the emancipation of 4 million enslaved people in the South of immense possibility uh, for economic equity and, and progress towards multiracial democracy. And this Reconstruction project was a grassroots Black-led movement that really challenged this country to actually live up to its professed principles of, of liberty and justice for all, right? Across all sorts of spheres, politically, socially, economically. So, you know, the right to fair labor and land ownership, to education, to political representation, to cultivating joy and safety and, and communities. These are all parts of freedom and all parts of a long Black freedom struggle that are really, really in play uh, in this era of emancipation and, and reconstruction on an unprecedented scale. And white supremacists respond to this struggle to Black people making the most of freedom with terror, violence, and fraud, and whatever they can do to topple reconstruction and, and end this project um, of multiracial democracy for almost a century and until the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. And these later struggles largely stem from reconstruction and they continue today. So as part of this campaign, we developed our own standards rubric uh, with teachers and scholars of what an accurate history of reconstruction should include. And we conducted this study of Reconstruction's place in social studies standards today. And we found that the standards in place today so often miss the mark. So I'll get into some of those specifics here. First, I'll say that standards regularly highlight governments, presidents, and elites as primary actors rather than Black people and their allies at the grassroots level um, and the coalitions that drove Reconstruction's achievements, really. We found that standards rarely name or contend with white supremacy or white terror. So when we finished reviewing standards in 2021, we found that Massachusetts was the only state with standards that directly mention and link white supremacy to the rise of the Klan, the passage of Black Codes and Jim Crow laws, and the end of Reconstruction. Hmm. In over a dozen states, standards still promote an inaccurate history of Reconstruction influenced by the Dunning School. So now the Dunning School was once, and, and for much of the 20th century, the dominant approach to this scholarship. And it denied Black achievements and celebrated white supremacy and casted Reconstruction as this sort of illegitimate enterprise that was meant to fail. And one way we see this now is in the framing of the successes versus failures of Reconstruction. I don't know if that you know was a part of your education and you've seen that before, I certainly did in mine. Um, but it's this binary of was Reconstruction a success or a failure, which is so common and, and it obscures in the word failure, particularly the way that white supremacists deliberately destroyed Reconstruction precisely because of its successes. And then a lot of standards today still use the term carpetbaggers and scalawags. We get this one a lot. Everyone's kind of heard these, I think, which are these terms that were mainly used by white Southerners to disparage Northerners who moved South, carpetbaggers, and white Southerners, scalawags, who supported Reconstruction. So a lot of standards are coming from that kind of disparaging lost cause perspective. And I'll add that the Dunning School um, gets its name from William Dunning, who was a historian at Columbia University in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But the Dunning School of Thought is much bigger than him or the university, and that's why it's kind of become so pervasive um, in, in 
education and, and was for much of the 20th century. It pervaded a lot of popular culture, like Birth of a Nation in 1915, um, Woodrow Wilson's favorite movie that he played at the White House, an extraordinarily racist and popular movie at the time that heaps praise on the Klan and the Lost Cause, or Gone with the Wind decades later. And we still see a lot of relics of this today. And um, so, so yeah, and, and we also found that standards often limit the significance of reconstruction to Southern states, um, which, you know, people grappled with discrimination and, and fought for freedom and equality in the North, in the West, throughout the country, really. So these struggles look different in different places, but there are stories to tell in these regions beyond the South that, that standards often leave out. And I can kind of give you um, a concrete example from my home state, Pennsylvania, which is the story of Octavius Caddo, who was a black educator, baseball player, civil rights leader in Philadelphia, and who during reconstruction was instrumental in organizing for black suffrage, equal education opportunities for black students, and the desegregation of streetcars and, and baseball leagues. He was then killed on election day, 1871, by a white supremacist vigilante who was never convicted who was acquitted actually by a sympathetic all-white jury. And then a full 140 years later, sort of into the present in 2017, a sculpture of Caddo was unveiled at City Hall and it became the first ever in Philadelphia to honor an individual African-American out of all the statues in the city. And we have many, we're, we're known for that. Um, and so this is just one example of, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who learned about Octavius Caddo in school or about the struggle for justice in Pennsylvania during Reconstruction or the struggle over who gets commemorated, who gets memorialized, whose stories and legacies are deemed important in the decades that follow. Um, and so I'll end sort of the findings with along those lines, we found that standards largely neglect connections between Reconstruction and the issues we face today. The issues that people grappled with during Reconstruction are among the most pressing issues of today, equal treatment under the law, voting rights, disparities in, in education, health, wealth, labor, the carceral state, and struggles over the idea and practice of democracy. And you rarely see those connections in the standards. Um, and so to sort of cap it off, many, many cases, standards don't provide sufficient time to learn about all of these things or really to learn about the era at all, depending on the time allotted and the placement in the school year, which is often at the end of the year, they often encourage educators to rush through um, a reconstruction unit or skip it entirely. And we surveyed uh, teachers around the country and some are doing really, really incredible work in their classroom communities to teach this history. But many teachers said they feel unprepared to teach it. They have to find time and resources to educate themselves first. And standards are often very vague and, and not helpful. Um, and then, of course, kind of more recently, teachers also expressed their concerns about the ongoing political efforts to ban discussions about racism, sexism, quote unquote, controversial topics from classrooms. So with all of that said, in terms of our, our goals and our hopes and the impact, um, our goal with publishing the report is to encourage readers to advocate for more attention to reconstruction in K through 12 curricula and classrooms across the country. So we suggest major improvements 
to state and school district frameworks that will better equip teachers and students to engage with the truth and complexity of reconstruction. And then beyond content areas that students should learn, we advocate for logistical support, like resources in schools to provide educators with more time and avenues for professional development and curriculum development or um, school district support for, for collaboration and creating and sharing alternatives to what we have now. So we want the report to inform and motivate and support a variety of readers in different roles. We want it to be a resource for people resisting legislators and groups working to suppress teaching the truth. Um, so that students and, and all of us can benefit from the historical awareness and critical insights that Reconstruction provides into systems of oppression, but also legacies of activism and, and radical possibilities for a more equitable society in the present and future. Mm. Yeah, Mimi, thank you so much for that um, kind of overview and history and context there. Uh, and definitely, as you were talking, was having some high school flashbacks to the contrast between the U.S. history course I took and the African-American history course I took in terms of the, the time, length of treatment, et cetera. Uh, on the topic of, of uh, Reconstruction and cent centering the scalawags and, uh, and carpetbaggers uh, in the conversation about the success or failure of, of Reconstruction, I'm sure, uh, is ringing true for, for many uh, folks who are, who are watching and listening right now. Um, and you, you also mentioned the, uh, the Dunning School and the kind of um, uh, generational influence on the framing of reconstruction in school curricula. Uh, I want to go a little bit deeper on um, kind of on that. And it is hard for me and I'm sure for many other people to not look at the results of uh, the report that you co-authored and our own experiences in school and not feel like there has been a sort of intentional whitewashing uh, certainly historically, but also one that perhaps continues uh, today. And uh, folks like W.E.B. Du Bois were, you know, very vocal critics of the kind of outright lies in the curriculum that were being institutionalized in the earlier parts of the, uh, of the 20th century. Um, and also, you know, more recently, uh, historian um, Eric Foner claimed that for no other period of American history does such a wide gape exist between current scholarship and popular historical understanding, referring to the era of, of Reconstruction. So I wonder if you can just share with us, from, from what you have learned and your perspective, why does the period of Reconstruction, why has it been such a target for some of the kind of lies and manipulation, um, if you will, and, um, you know, what... What are the implications of that in our educational system today? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So I think learning the true history of the Reconstruction era is, is disruptive to the discriminatory status quo in this country. And many people in power benefit from the status quo. They don't want it disrupted. They don't want people analyzing racial capitalism. They don't want people asking why inequality is so pronounced across so many different institutions and, and areas of life. They don't want people questioning if the US Constitution is a good document or if we really live in a democracy. And they don't want people dreaming of something better together and gaining solidarity and inspiration from history with all the people who push progress 
for generations before us. And I think that learning about reconstruction kicks up all those sorts of thoughts and ideas for us and for our students. So for example, if you learn the truth about reconstruction, you learn about the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments to the constitution, the reconstruction amendments related to abolishing slavery, establishing birthright citizenship and equal protection under the law, voting rights, and how they came to be. And you might see very clearly that the Constitution was not designed originally by the founders of this country to support equality, right? When you learn the truth about Reconstruction, you learn about how Black communities founded the first public school systems in the South, and how white supremacists then burned hundreds of them down, over 600, and that's certainly an underestimate. You learn about people who were once enslaved, now serving in Congress, and that the backlash to Reconstruction, including voter suppression, then ended that level of, of Black political representation for almost a century. And you learn about progressive promises the federal government made and retracted and how free people organized for fair labor and, and won battles against segregated schools and other public facilities decades before Plessy versus Ferguson made segregation the law of the land. And you'll see the progress is, is not a straight line, not even close. And, and many people in power today would like us to believe that U.S. history is one long victory march from slavery to a free and post-racial present so that we don't question their power and the status quo, but that's just not true. And so that's a big reason, I think, why Reconstruction is uh, a major target for lies and manipulation, as you say, dating back at, at least back to the Dunning School and the Lost Cause mythology. It's those insights. And I think Within um, these terms, lies and manipulation, we should also talk briefly about suppression and, and neglect as part of that. I mean, in the early 2010s, if you remember, there was all this fanfare over the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, commemorating anniversaries of battles and, and speeches. And a lot of that, too, was, was whitewashing that history or glorifying war, which happens a lot. But that's just easier to do and to consume for a lot of people. There's sort of like a narrative arc there that is very familiar and falls into line with this master narrative, positive trajectory of history. And the stories and legacies of Reconstruction are in some ways more complex from a storytelling perspective. You know, there are radical promises and achievements and then the dismantling of many of those promises and achievements. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of the good and bad legacies of the time still bear on us today. So now we're moving through the 150th anniversary of Reconstruction, with some, but very little commemoration compared to what came right before it, the Civil War. And that's something we found in the standards, too, and talking to teachers, you know, that Reconstruction sort of gets collapsed into a standard or a unit about the Civil War, and then it's right into Jim Crow. So sometimes the lies and manipulation are outright, like Reconstruction had to fail, it wasn't the right time for that level of progress to to sustain and so it didn't. And sometimes it's just civil war to Jim Crow, to the civil rights movement of the 20th century and so on, skipping right over reconstruction so mm. that students can more easily assume that this country is always moving forward and we can more easily get complacent about the kind of work and struggle it takes to bring about real progress and to sustain it. And so it's easier in some ways, I think, to muddle or suppress the history of Reconstruction and for people in power who want to keep the status quo, it's very advantageous to do that. So our work is to push back and to do our part to ensure that students, educators, school administrators, 
social studies leaders, policymakers, anyone else connected to K through 12 education or history education more broadly have their resources and tools um, that they need to lend more attention and analysis to, re to, to the reconstruction era. So we wanna close that gap between modern scholarship and popular understanding. Yeah, I love that. And I definitely wanna take a moment for anybody listening or watching who is a parent or caregiver of somebody in the school system. So if you yourself don't teach history uh, or social studies, like, but you got little ones, definitely it's worth asking the teachers of those little ones about reconstruction and where it shows up in the curriculum and how it's it's dealt with in the curriculum. And uh, you know, there, this report here, doesn't, doesn't only just point out how reconstruction is, the importance of it is erased or minim, uh, minimized. It also found some evidence of really troubling language and assumptions and, and paradigms and schools of thought throughout social studies standards. So there are folks listening or watching who don't know much about social studies standards or don't teach social, social studies. So what can you tell us about these standards that isn't perhaps common knowledge? And when it comes to trying to reform these standards or update them, in, here in California, the social studies standards have not been updated since 1998. Uh, what are some considerations for folks out there who are doing that work? Yeah, yeah. So, so first, I think it's important to acknowledge that social study standards and textbooks, too, are so often written and distributed as if they come from some authoritative and objective source. Uh, but what we preserve and, and what we teach and highlight involves making choices and the choices reflected in social studies standards often suit this master narrative that that is to sort of cultivate patriotism and pride in the broad history of the country and unwavering belief in our governments and institutions and so on. And that goes beyond um, the way that, that they present reconstruction. Like you say, it's in, it's in a lot of the language and and so on. So in other words, they they often um, reflect the historical narratives endorsed by people in power, and those people are then affecting school curricula. And I think that's an important thing to stay up front because not everyone questions the presentation of history, thinking about what's not there, you know, what stories are not showing up in the standards or in this textbook, given the way that it's framed. Another thing to know is that there are a wide range of approaches to standards depending on the state, especially local control states. And you may or may not be aware of this sort of thing depending on where you live. Um, so a majority of states, including California, release uh, social studies standards and frameworks with content requirements for social studies classes um, and in districts across the state. So for example, in California, which I think has, a, a has like you say, um, the standards were last updated really in 1998, but they have they've released frameworks that inform them more recently um, and inform the curricula. Um, I think I think as recently as 2016 or so. Yeah. So in California, the the eighth grade standards have a reconstruction unit that includes students learning about the Freedmen's Bureau, the rise of the Klan, the significance of the Reconstruction Amendments. But a lot of states are are local control meaning most curricular decisions are made at the district level and content standards at the state level are very often um, very broad or non-existent. Local control state education departments often have standards that focus on skill buildings, skill building. So um, for example, something like students will learn to identify change over time or consider different historical perspectives. 
And sometimes they'll have no state mandated standards, but they'll have recommended guides for organizing curricula. So all of that sort of affects how standards work and degrees of analysis and, and where to place each of our efforts, depending on where we are. It can really depend on the state. And for some teachers, in, in rare cases, uh, local control is great because they're not beholden to standards that could get in the way of them teaching an accurate history. But for many other uh, many other teachers, they may not have the time, experience, professional development, like we've been talking about earlier, to know and teach an accurate history. And the standards they have aren't helping. So it becomes such a mixed bag in terms of the curricula and what students end up learning. And um, I, I also want to say that, you know, that standards are important, but of course, they alone are not the most important issue in schools. Uh, as you know, you know, some educators in every state, regardless of standards, are finding ways to teach well, and standards alone do not create good teaching. You know, good standards alone aren't necessarily uh, creating good teaching. And of course, as you well know, funding professional development, resources, pedagogy, health and safety, like all of these are so integral to education too. But to your second question, in terms of broader efforts to reform standards, and I think that's a great question, I want to emphasize that standards are not fixed. Different states undergo revisions and adopt new standards in different years. Some departments have postponed theirs recently because of the pandemic uh, or because of the anti-history bills in some cases. So I would suggest that people see, you know, what's going on in your state and know that standards are often undergoing transformations, or if they're not now, they, they likely will be soon. And a lot of that, which we note in the report, is a consequence of struggle and resistance from educators and students and family members, community members. So getting involved in that struggle at school board meetings, writing to district and, and state social studies specialists, policymakers, sharing feedback of draft standards during the revision process um, are solid actions to take at your local level, which is really important. And our report has a section on standards and the politics of knowledge. Uh, and a section on recommendations for improvement, including some content areas of reconstruction that we sort of got into earlier, sort of the flip side of some of the findings, like foregrounding the meaning of freedom of, to Black people and the actions they took to realize it, naming and confronting white supremacy and white terror, emphasizing the significance of the era throughout the United States, addressing the legacies of the era today, among others that can be used to sort of guide a lot of these efforts. Yeah. Uh I particularly enjoyed that uh, portion of the report and appreciated the, you know, the sort of connection between the uh, presentation of the findings and the, so what are we going to do about it that, um, that I think is often a, a hallmark of, um, of the work that comes from the Zen Education Project. So very much appreciate that. And as you know, as you know, Mimi, we're living through this era where uh, in many parts of the country, sometimes in whole states like Florida, Texas, you know, et cetera, uh, and in other cases, just in certain districts or municipalities, uh, we're really living through a kind of period of regression uh, <laughs> at this point. Um, and uh, really a lot of vitriol and backlash against, in particular, the, the sort of uprisings in the streets and the, and the push for progress that, that emanated from the kind of post-murder of George Floyd era. 
And uh, I think what we're, you know, what we're seeing in many places for educators is a raising of the stakes around, uh, you know, do I have the freedom to speak truthfully about history um, and quote unquote controversial topics um, in the classroom or does that, you know, risk my credential or risk my job or, you know, these, these sorts of things. So I'm wondering actually if given your expertise on this issue, if you can share some insight um, from the kind of history of what has happened, the politics around what has happened with the teaching of reconstruction that might help inform our organizing advocacy efforts, et cetera, uh, around teaching not only Reconstruction, but other elements of just teaching a truthful history uh, today in the context of a climate where, you know, th these ideas are, are, you know, being suppressed and, and um, there is threat uh, to people in the equation. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think we'll we'll have to go all the way back to the Dunning School for this one, unfortunately. But let's do it. I think I think um, that's that's kind of a place to start because I, I, like you're saying, I think that you know there's a lot we could say, and we compare, you know, we can compare the backlash to struggles for justice today with the backlash to struggles for justice during Reconstruction, and we see the lost cause in the Dunning School as as kind of a continuation of that backlash that dismantles Reconstruction and helps to reinforce. Jim Crow um, in in education and in teaching and beyond for many decades. So first, one takeaway, I think, comes from looking at the Dunning School and its supporters and people who touted the lost cause and, and seeing that they knew the power of the truth and of historical mythology. They said that slavery wasn't a cruel institution and they taught that Reconstruction was a reckless project that was meant to fail. And they taught these lies because they knew that the truth would make it harder to justify their interests in maintaining a white supremacist society and an equitable society. And the same could be said today as we face these draconian laws. It's good to first, I think, reaffirm our purpose, reaffirm that historical narratives are effective and the truth is powerful. Historical awareness can activate people. Uh, education is central to freedom, and and that's exactly why it's attacked. It matters, and, and acknowledging that might sound simple, but I think it really affirms our work, so that's a good place to start. Another takeaway comes from looking at what uh, turned the tides in the history of teaching Reconstruction. So the Dunning School was refuted by Du Bois, like you mentioned earlier, particularly in Black Reconstruction in 1935. And a few other scholars trying to, you know, tell the truth and advocate for the discipline of history as a vehicle for progress, not propaganda. But it's the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s that really catalyzes major legal, political, and, and cultural change and changes in the academy, new Black studies departments. And then we start to see many more histories that really... Um, and, and historians discrediting this stuff and building far more accurate scholarship on reconstruction. So another takeaway as we face these challenges uh, today would be that movement building and solidarity is key. Educational organizations and institutions devoted to accurate and equitable histories are, are crucial to this work. And, you know, now there, there's a lie that's baked into these anti-history laws that I just want to mention, these book bans today that 
students, namely white students, will feel bad, will feel guilty if they learn about racism, if they learn about, in this case, reconstruction history. And that's just not really true unless they're taught to identify with oppressive systems and people. At the end of the day, when students learn history and have the support and encouragement of their teachers and communities to identify with the values and goals of, of people who struggled for justice in the past, we actually see them become more informed and inspired and motivated to move in solidarity today and, and to work towards a more just future. And so the last point I'll, I'll get into involves revisiting the Dunning School just one more time because I want us to think about strategy a little more and again consider this idea of uh, quote unquote neutrality in history. So in 1913, at the American Historical Association's annual meeting, William Dunning, the, the namesake of the school, gave a, a speech called Truth in History. And he basically referred to professional historians as objective narrators, while also claiming that the narratives they tell should support national unity and state building. And at the bottom of his speech, uh, you can see his bio and his bio says that in his work on reconstruction, he helped to ratify the unification of North and South on principles of white supremacy. So he's touting objectivity while mm -hmm. burying the facts in order to use the discipline of history as propaganda as again, as Du Bois and others criticize. So another takeaway is to, I think really still be wary um, of similar tactics today, be alert to that in our education system uh, that try to get people to avoid talking about the history of racism or sexism or any inequality in the name of some made up neutrality or objectivity, right? Because that creates a sort of inversion where you can say something that is just factual and perhaps enlightening and the right wing will call it just a, a politically motivated opinion. And so with that said, sort of going full circle back to history teaching, I think it's really important too that we incorporate a variety of primary source documents in lessons, engage students in primary source analysis so they can see the history for themselves. That's something I try to do as a historian and someone who spent a lot of time in archives. Um, and more and more we're building up our primary source collection at the, the Zen Education Project because they give students the opportunity to really um, to to take in a diversity of historical perspectives and documents and analyze, you know, what is this? Who wrote it? Who is it for? What is its purpose? Why was it preserved? And that sort of critical investigation is important to historical analysis and present day media analysis, sort of all the information we consume, but it's also a way to challenge these anti-history laws. And this is a point I've listened to Kadada Williams make recently, and I love when she talks about it. She's an incredible historian of Reconstruction. And she talks about uh, being strategic with these anti-history bills, considering them and challenging them and, and what they prohibit by using the historical record and the archives that catalog the record. I mean, a lot of these archives are connected to the government, right? Like the Library of Congress, the National Archives, state archives that hold a lot of these primary source records. And these records hold the truth. So that can be really helpful. So those are just a few ideas and, and takeaways from the history of teaching reconstruction. And that sort of evolution into the present can inform our efforts to combat these laws uh, and you know the undermining of truth and justice 
in education. Yeah, yeah. I uh, really appreciate those thoughts, uh, Mimi. And I, I'm also just struck by the, the use of language uh, that, that you shared with us there. I think we, we have not yet in our popular consciousness evolved to a place of speaking about these efforts to suppress uh, you know, the truthful teaching of history in this country as propaganda, as lies, as efforts to manipulate, uh, you know, sort of plain language that speaks pretty, pretty undeniably to, um, you know, the both motivations and actions of, uh, of a lot of folks who are uh, kind of stirring the pot um, on these issues in school board meetings and uh, governor's offices uh, around the country. So um, very much appreciate that. And Mimi, sadly, we have come to the end of our, our time with you today, uh, but really just want to thank you for, um, for joining us. I think it's been um, just a real pleasure to have you and very much appreciate you lending your expertise to our, to our audience here um, on all the above. So folks, Mimi Eisen, Program Manager with the Zen Education Project. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here and, and thanks for having me and thanks for all the, the good work you're doing. Wonderful. Oh, and Mimi, before we go, I almost forgot, um, if folks want to learn more about um, the report, if folks want to learn more about your work or the work of the Zen Education Project, uh, where, where can they find your work? Yeah, um, I'm in a number of places, but I think uh, going to zenedproject.org, going to teachreconstructionreport.org, um, and you can also email me um, at the Zen Education Project. So my email is first letter, first name, and then last name. So mizen at zenedproject.org. Um, and, and let me know what you think. You know, let me know if you're looking for support or, or someone to talk to you as, as you work on these things. Wonderful. We will add that information uh, in the notes below the episode here as well. Uh, but once again, Mimi Eisen, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, folks, that's it for today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, but stick around. Next up is our Class Dismissed. All right, folks. We've come to that point in the episode and shout out to all of you who are still with us at this point in the episode. We love y'all. We love all of our AOTA family, but especially those who stick for the full length all the way to the end of the episode. Shout out to y'all. This is, of course, Class Dismissed, where we like to shout out folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Jeff, it's been a minute since we've had a Class Dismissed. So who are we shouting out today? Well, Manuel, today is going to be a fun one because sometimes, you know, we talk about great stories of people out there in education doing amazing things. And it's just really cool, but we don't necessarily know these people. But sometimes we get to celebrate amazing people doing dope things in the world of education that we have had the privilege to cross paths with or personally know. And that makes it extra special. And today is one of those occasions. So uh, folks may have seen some press releases out there, uh, in particular folks um, here in the state of California, about the governor's announcement of both the finalists and the actual five awardees of the California 2023 State Teachers of the Year. And we here and all the above are very privileged to have two extra special connections in that equation. One is former all the above guest and super dope educa uh, elementary educator, 
in the city of Los Angeles, Megan Sorrell, who was named a finalist. And the other is one of the five California State Teachers of the Year, who is Jason Torres Rangel, who is a high school English teacher um, here in Los Angeles. He also just so happens to be a proud graduate of the 2004 uh, teacher education program at the Harvard Graduate School of Ed with none other than Dr. Manuel Rustin and yours truly uh, from back in the day. Uh, so really excited to just see uh, Jason getting this incredible acknowledgement um, uh, of his many talents and, and contributions to the profession. Um, and also, he happens to work at a high school that I get to work with uh, <laughs> fairly regularly. So uh, shout out to Jason, shout out to all of the amazing educators at Theodore Roosevelt High School in Boyle Heights in Los Angeles. Um, just congratulations on um, amazing work with young people and in service of the community and um, job well done. Yeah, absolutely. Shout out to Jason for sure. And, you know, teaching is one of those professions where it we all deserve to be acknowledged, but there's just not the mechanisms just aren't there to acknowledge everybody's super dope work in the classroom. So we also want to, of course, extend um, congrats and warm embrace to everybody out there in the classroom who's fighting the good fight every day for their young people. And for Jason, man, we got to get you on the show. I don't know if you're watching, but we got to get you on the show. Uh, have a little mini Harvard reunion on all of the above. But of course, a uh, shout out to all the finalists. Shout out to everybody out there whose name has been ringing out for the dope work that you're doing in the classroom. So with that being said, folks, we've come to the end of this full episode. And if you haven't already taken the time to hit that thumbs up or you know five stars or, or whatever review mechanism happens to be in the app that you use to watch or listen to our show, uh, please, please, please do uh, do us a favor and take a moment to do that, all right? And remember, our website, aotashow.com, has links to all the previous episodes and the episode notes under this one have links to today's content, today's stories, and uh, of course, the report that we spoke about during the seminar. So shout out to all of y'all. We hope everybody has a fantastic week or two until the next episode of All of the Above. All right. We love y'all. See you later.